other people, again, will, will sense different things in there. The more complex it is, it's really a great thing. You've got four of you. I'm sure you all got somewhat different palace, just how it works out. Yeah, we agree to disagree, but we all agree to enjoy. <laughs> One way or another. That's we're, the point. We're here for enjoyment. And, you know, they always say that drinking is, you know, a, a pure sport. You know, <laughs> it's like we, we don't want to have too many rules. We don't want to have any, too many guidelines. We want to have, well, let me try this and see what I think. Let me try that see what I think. Welcome back to the Tap Takeover Podcast. And for our 17th episode, we have a special treat. We have a huge episode in store for you. We're sitting down with pioneer of craft beer, Randy Sprecher. This is going to be a fantastic episode. But before we get to that, we needed to take a break, and we have a huge announcement. Andy, I'm going to hand it over to you. So, folks, the huge announcement is we are now partnered with Shepherd Express. We'd like to thank Alyssa, Rob, and Cole over at the shop for uh, making this partnership with us. Yeah, big thanks. And it's really an affirmation of our listeners and all the feedback they've provided us and their excitement of the podcast, I think, has driven a lot of this exterior excitement that we're now seeing with this great partnership of Shepherd's Express. I think that's a really good point, Jim. We we owe everything to our listeners. You know, when we just sat down, four guys who like drinking and talking about beer, you know, we, we feel like we've been training for this our whole lives. But it, it really is special that we have seem to have hit a nerve. People really want to know more about the craft beer community, and they want to know it from, from people who have experienced some really good beers. All right, guys. So thanks to the fans and especially all the brewers out there that have uh, welcomed us with open arms. Cheers, guys. Cheers. Welcome back to the Tap Takeover Podcast. And ladies and gentlemen, we have a huge treat for you today. For us here in Milwaukee, for the Tap Takeover Podcast, uh, we've always thought of three breweries as kind of the, the three big pillars in Milwaukee. Uh, one of those is Lakefront. We got them with our first episode. Uh, the second was Milwaukee Brewing Company. We got them with our second. And right now we're sitting down with Randy Sprecher of Sprecher Brewing. Randy, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, my pleasure. It's uh, great that uh, the timing worked out that uh, we could all get together today. So, Randy, just to start, we'd like to go back to the beginning for us and our listeners. Tell us how Sprecher became the first Milwaukee brewery to open since Prohibition. Well, I had already got to Milwaukee from the West Coast uh, after uh, finishing a program at UC Davis in California uh, to brew the uh, brew for Pabst. It was actually a supervisor of brewing operations at Pabst, but I ended up uh, working all divisions around there, learning the whole place. I was there a little, just a little over four years when things started caving in really strongly. So I was out here with Pabst. I had already had my plan. I already was working on a plan to do this, recipes, etc. And I started looking for a place to, to go park because I knew the $40,000 I had saved uh, working for four years out here uh, wasn't going to get me anything at all in California. Oh, yeah. I figured I'd get a, a front door and a doormat and 40 grand would be gone. So 
I knew that, uh, well, I'm going to have to I'm gonna have to put my stake here in Milwaukee. I knew a lot of people through the brewing department, but it wasn't really knowing anybody out in town too much because we worked around the clock working over there. Some summers, it was uh, we were doing 7-12s, so 84 hours a week. We always would talk to each other about like, oh, we got to work this much. We should be working for ourselves. You know, I said, well, I plan to. <laughs> and they started nicknaming me the California Dreamer. Uh, that I was bringing in beers I was making and stuff, and they're going, gosh, this is pretty interesting. How come so much hops and stuff? You know? And uh, so when things came in there, I uh, started looking for a place to get started, and it ultimately uh, landed on a building that I talked my way into in the old Fister Bogle Tannery Complex down on Oregon Street on the canals down there in Menominee Valley. I worked out a deal with them to upgrade their building and clean it all up. It was the chemical building for the whole complex, which was the largest tannery in the world at one time. And this was the chemical section right on the canals. So I made a deal to clean it up and I didn't pay rent for quite a long time, which allowed me an opportunity to go build a system. Again, we build our own equipment, making a gas-fired all-stainless brew kettle and fired with natural gas. Well, I, uh, I got in there and uh, about, uh, I'd say about six months, we got a system going, got licensed, and had test beer ready to send out as soon as the New Year's came around. How, how, uh, how big a system did you guys start with? Was it a uh, seven I made a 25 barrel. Oh, wow. About 25 barrel. Yeah, that's a big start. And I made a handmade louder tub out of a milk cooler with screens. Uh, we got a lot of pictures around here showing all those things I jerry-rigged to try to make decent beer with it. And I always tell people, well, if you know what you're doing uh, and you're real careful, you can make beer out of your boots, but you better be really careful <laughs> or you'll get some pretty pretty bad gym sock beer. you got to keep in mind back then in 85, we didn't have anything in the way of ingredients. You couldn't buy a yeast culture. Everything was very, very limited as far as a range because the big guys didn't use that big a range in their, their brewing. You know, a lot of the beers are just incrementally different, you know, very, very, very close. And I got everything going and got a brew going. I made two brews. I made my special amber I was working on. And Black Bavarian is something I've been brewing since I loved black uh, lagers in Germany when I was in Germany in the 60s. In the military, I spent 18 months there. That's where I really got hooked on beer because tasting is really what it's all about. And I was able to go all over Europe tasting because I worked for a general. All right, so that leads into uh, one of the questions that we ask all of our brewers. Uh, Actually, we're going to have to ask this in a different way because typically we ask, how did you come to the craft brewing industry? You know, what were the early craft brews in in America that you tried? But uh, since you were kind of one of the, the founders of the craft brewing industry, what what kind of propelled you into that? What what beers were you drinking that, that made you say, I need to start making this? Well, again, it goes back to my military experience in, in the Bavaria. I was, I was in Augsburg, Germany, right outside of Munich uh, for 18 months. I was able to travel around as well. I went, you know, tried a lot of Belgians and Dutch, and we hit them all. Uh, tasting all these beers, when I finally got back to the U.S. and the West Coast, I can't drink American beer. I got to go buy the imports. Well, then I realized, found out, oh, the imports are basically export-type beer, so it lasts longer, so they get that whole year shelf life, whereas they had a real short shelf life in Bavaria and Germany, making stuff extremely fresh. I mean, three weeks was old beer to them, wow. and uh, unless you're aging something special. After I started oceanography school at Humboldt State in California, North, Northern California, Redwood area, I was going, gosh, I can't afford the beer. I had a wife and child going to school. I said, the only way out of this is to go make my own beer. So <laughs> back then, you couldn't even find ingredients. We had malt syrup in a can. Some grains uh, is very, very limited. 
although if I drove up to Canada, they actually had places that would have caramel malt and so on. Because as was, I was having to take like cookie sheets, soak the pale malt, and put on cookies and then put them in my oven. Well, but we got got it done and made made some uh, things like that. So I, I worked on a on a, a variety of recipes. But one of them I actually started calling Black Bavarian right off the bat. It was wow. it's basically based on on my idea of a strong Doppelbach uh, from Germany in those days that I just loved. Well, anyhow, so I got home. I started making uh, home brewing, and I started getting into so much that I. Uh, I started doing some wine, brandy, and, and then eventually I started going, gosh, I'd like to make some root beer soda. And I found these hires extract they had those days, you know. Well, I wanted to know what was in there, so I would drive all the way over from, I was in Napa Valley then, but I'd drive all the way over to, over to Davis, California, to their user library, reading all their beer books. You, you, you have to be, realize there's a lot in Russian in beer too, Russian, French, and German. Germany was the biggest by far. Uh, that was all in English, however. I didn't ring that much German. I read a lot more German today than I did then. There was an afternoon that um, they had these uh, people coming to the UC Davis campus, and they would invite the students to come out and interview with them. And they were people coming from the ind- alcohol industry, looking for new blood to put into their businesses. And this was wine distilled distilleries and, and breweries. So I was... I was uh, People don't know this guy's name too much, but if people look, those that are in microbiology know Dr. Pfaff, P-F-A-F-F. He was a, he was a Dutch guy, and I, I got in all his classes. He had his own family of yeast, Pfaffia. He was a master of yeast. So I went to study with him about the culture, energetics, all kinds of topics that most people don't get into, and then enzymology, all these things that are really important to understand to do a more technical brewing. I was out there in a lab coat. I had no intentions of doing anything too serious. I just went, went out to take a break from my lab work to see what's going on and get some fresh air. Well, I ended up talking to a few people. Next thing I know, I had three job offers. <laughs> I go, well, that worked out pretty well. And I, I finished the whole program at Davis. I decided to take a job with Pabst. So I had a Volkswagen bus. I had all kinds of home brewing stuff I would collect as I went around. I would find old pieces of stainless and turn it into something. So they came and picked up all my brewing stuff. And what I owned fit my my Volkswagen bus, oh, <laughs> <yeah>. my clothes, <laughs> my stereo. <laughs> and uh, off I drove to come out here to Milwaukee uh, and, uh, and get started with the PAPS operation. A little over four years with them. I landed at the uh, Fister Vogel tank right here in the valley. Got started building things where they're about nine years, expanding into different parts of the building and across the tracks, railroad tracks. Everyone knows the famous railroad track stories are just Unbelievable things happen there. (laughs) So some of my earliest memories of visiting Sprecher Brewing down at uh, 730 West Oregon was that it was a little difficult to get to. Uh, The first time, we weren't quite sure going through across the railroad tracks. And also, it was a little cozy in there. It wasn't a terribly big building, much less... uh, How did you fit a 25-barrel system in there? Well, the the one floor actually had plenty of room. If you had been in the building, it had a front section that had multiple stories and then a bigger section, which had a downstairs and a high ceiling. And then we went back on that floor. Well, that was the same thing. It was like 5,000 square feet down below, and of course that on top. So there was, there was room for the brewing thing I put in there. The, the difficulty was getting uh, tanks and fermenters up on that floor. It was, up, uh, it was like a two-story concrete floor. So we had to cut holes and widen out things. I got places where I got a fork truck trying to get a, squeeze a tank through all to get to the next <laughs> floor. It was a little bit fatter than the other tanks. All dairy tanks weren't made exactly the same. 
Uh, they were really good quality stainless from the 50s. And I did get a lot of stuff when they were disassembling the Schlitz Brewery. I got to be friends with them over there. I would get loads and loads out of there, pay for it, of course. But I'd go through and pick out things on one ladder here and a wickle there and so forth to fit on the tanks I was having put together. I started with that dairy, dairy stuff, and as I stayed with that uh, for a long time. So, Randy, can you share with us any of those crazy fun stories from, from back at the first days at the, at the first brewery? Oh, oh, there's all kinds of things going on. Um, well, you know, it had two sides of this building had were canal. They brought big, heavy cement boats in. They had powdered cement, really dense stuff, and they would get pushed around the curves and stuff with powerful tugboats. Well, there was a time that they weren't too accurate with their boat pushing and heavy things, and they would ram the wall to the brewery, which went into the water on one side, and above that, on the concrete floor, was the brewery, the brew house, and that lower floor eventually became the bottling area. Well, I'll tell you what, when this boat hit, you thought everything, we were all, that was it. We were dying. <laughs> Everything's going to slide into the canal. It was such a hammering, you couldn't believe it. They would go out and look out the window, and the guys, oh, gosh, we're sorry, we're sorry, you know. <laughs> yeah, all kinds of things happened there. I had to, uh, once people found out there was alcohol there, uh, <laughs> I had to weld bars on every single window, <laughs> even on the third and fourth floor, which is on that first section. Had multiple. They would climb up the pipes or whatever dangerously and try to break in and go get some freebies or whatever they're going to do oh, man. and try to steal the payroll and everything else you know uh, after welding bars or anything it's, it's slowed down a little bit we still had issues oh there's so many stories about in the tannery complex itself there's all kinds of underground things despite them trying to keep control a lot of people were off the railroad were kind of sneaking around living down there or, or hanging out or whatever it was um it was kind of crazy because you always had to keep looking over your shoulder you know, <laughs> after it got dark. You know, keep things kosher and um, and to be safe as well. Was, and that would have been, of course, the uh, the middle to late '80s. Then awesome stories. <laughs> this is really cool. But going back now, before you started it, you said you were actually experimenting with root beer parallel with beer. Is that? Oh yeah, I started looking at root beer formulation. Those uh, recipes and anything else you do that, that get uh, trademarked, uh, they had to, after so many years, uh, offer what their recipes were, you know. So I was looking at what these syrup concentrate guys were doing. And by the way, just try to find those places. Those are highly secret places and secret people that work there to make the Coke and the Pepsi oh, concentrates. Yeah. And they use quite a range of ingredients to come up with something that could be easily done with uh, other natural products, which were, over time, kind of, I felt, forced to be illegal. Uh, sassafras root bark is the most natural root beer aroma you'll get. It's a component of that that they tried to prove would be bad for your health if you drank copious amounts of it. The, the experiments that got it all done were done in Germany, where they made extracts and fed it to rabbits until they had hepatic or liver lesions. So in other words, their liver was really starting to fail. Well, the equivalent amount of the sassafras root bark extract, the amount that they were feeding these rabbits, I, I calculated to be 15 gallons of root beer a day. <laughs> I mean, you would literally die in the first day trying to put 15 gallons of anything in you. So it was kind of silly. I kind of got the idea that they make sure this this ingredient couldn't be used to make something really good and aromatic by somebody else. Uh, so they made sure it was outlawed, and you had to, you had to put a very complex 
combination of compounds together in order to get an equivalent thing. Most all those formulas then and, and today are heavily dependent on, on wintergreen. Wintergreen is what people learn to identify as the root beer or sassafras or sarsaparilla. The, these things uh, are some, not really root barks at all. They're, they're com- compounds that have been made up to put together to be the equivalent of those if they could make it close enough. I got interested in root beer. I've seen those extracts. And uh, that's what I was working on, of course, was a lot of different extraction things with water, pH, acid changes, all these sort of things that you do when you study brewing. It's like coffee, too. People have to realize it's a brewed cup of coffee, right? People don't put all the brewing technology into making coffee. You go to the right coffee people, they will they'll slam what you're doing and tell you, here's all the little steps you got to pay attention to to really get the aroma out of a coffee bean. Same thing with the grains that we use in the brewing. It's a lot of other things you have to do. So you always thought, like, I'm going to do beer and root beer? Well, I, uh, well, yeah, I had an interest in the root beer. I, I was uh, making some root beer, uh, not as much as the number of br- beers I made. I mean, I actually have my old logbooks uh, here <laughs> when I, I started. Real simple at first, you know, and then got quickly more and more detail as far as ramp soak and things like that, time temperature situations for enzyme activity and things like that. No, I, my, my, my interest was making a beer. I, I had the interest in the root beer and the, the licensing of these formulas and what's happening. That's one reason I was messing with that. And then going over, like I said before, to Davis University to use their very comprehensive library to look these things up and see what was going on. And I decided I don't want we have to, we have to get more natural if we can. It's, it was difficult. They made it so it's difficult to make those things. But again, keep in mind that the limited amount of bioculture was like impossible. They had little liquid things that were already well infected <laughs> that you're buying. So he had a real challenge to make a uh, very, very palatable beer. Uh, but it, you learn, it's all trial and error. You know, it's, it's a lot of practice. So I hate to flash forward because there's 30 plus years of history, but a lot of it is because of this root beer. When would that? When did that turn that you said, holy cow, we're really being successful with this root beer? Because that's really what nationwide you're known for, right? Uh, yeah, pretty much. Some of the beers are known pretty well, the Black Bavarian and so on. But I didn't do any root beer at the brewery making a product to sell until about the third year. It was all beer to start. However, it was still messing around with my extract ideas and formulation with honey, vanilla, and of course, putting everything through a gas-fired kettle, which is very hot, hot skin. That, that's a real big issue is the temperature because it allows people to know what they're doing in the chemistry to lamp these molecules the way you like them for the peak flavor. I'd like to say that here at Sprecher, everything we do, we try to, we really focus on having really big, strong, clean flavors, you know, big flavor for you to enjoy. And uh, whether we use corn syrup or not, that all gets uh, converted to invert sugar due to high temperatures of the kettle under the presence of acid. But people have to realize a sweetener is a sweetener. Almost all of them are the same molecules, glucose and fructose. Other molecules are very, very slim, even in honey. People should keep that in mind. I, I want you to tell us why you're here in town. I mean, can you tell us a little bit about like uh, what you have going on? How often are you back in the town? What are your uh, kind well, of connections to day-to-day operations now? Well, day-to-day is pretty, uh, Craig Burge, uh, our wonderful brewmaster. Craig's been with me, I think he's 26 years now. I actually had him do a course that was no longer available, Correspondence Davis Brewing Course, which finished with a proctor flying out here taking Craig downtown to a lockup room and a nine-hour test. 
uh, he got top of the class. I picked Craig because I could tell, well, first of all, me a lot of people here with wonderful work ethic. <laughs> there, there's no lack of work <laughs> organizing, cleaning, moving things around in a brewing operation. But the big thing was that I could see by talking and checking some things that Craig had a very much, a, I would call, a parallel palate. We smelled and tasted a lot of things the same way. And I, and I could see this could be real beneficial uh, in getting, because uh, by the third year already, I was already going, uh-oh, things are really taking off here, and uh, I can't do all this work. Training people is a long process, and I did go through a lot of people that I go, uh, no, no, that's not working so well. Craig was a great one, so that kept going, and today he's, he's helped us. Along my original recipes, he's made many more. You know, virtually almost everything we've made has, has won a national award one way or another. Not easy thing to do whatsoever. So I'd say we have like 26 styles of products that have won national awards, all on the beer side. We've actually got quite a bit of notoriety for root beer and cream soda as well. So but he's he was just a like a regular employee, I guess. He was, was uh, washing bottles down in the basement when I, <laughs> when I ran to Craig. Uh, like somebody's uh, got to brew this stuff. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, I was going through people. Uh, they just simply didn't stick to my rules. And the results were obviously uh, having an issue. Yeah, I went through a few different people and then finally uh, landed with Craig. And it was 26 years later, so it's been a long a long duration, although we are in our 33rd year of business now. It's been a, it's been a great run, uh, lots of wonderful beer, and a lot of fun. A lot, a lot of trial and tribulation, hardships, and, and a lot of fun. You know, you gotta, you gotta enjoy what you do. You know, as kids, uh, my family, uh, they were, we're never orientated towards going for the money so much as going for what you like to do most. We were always taught that if you become really good at what you like to do, there's a good chance society is going to reward you for your, your good effort and your and your skills set development. And that proved to be true, you know, if you're a musician or whatever, or a carpenter, you just you go, you go to work every day with an attitude that I'm going to try to do something to improve today what I, uh, over what happened yesterday or last week, you know, and you just keep doing that, having a little set goals and keep going forward if you can with the technical detail and stuff. We're real pleased with our, our whole lineup of products these days. Well, excellent. I think we're going to take a little break. Yeah, it's, it's been such an honor sitting down with you. And uh, we'd love to talk about some of the beers, get some beers out here and do like a little live tasting. And, oh, sure. And we'll be uh, right back after some beer news. Welcome back to another edition of Beer News. The easily accessible beer this week is Daisy Cutter from Half Acre out of Chicago. Daisy Cutter Pale Ale is one of the first beers Half Acre brewed at their brewery on Lincoln Avenue. It began as a special release bomber beer but caught fire both in and outside the brewery. Daisy Cutter's lush and dank characteristics steadily carved out a place within the Chicago brewing landscape and Half Acre ventured their distro into Wisconsin earlier this year. Today, Daisy Cutter is Half Acre's call brand and they continue to keep it raw and relevant. Blended pine, citrus, papaya, and mango dance on your palate and finishes with dry, apparent biscuit notes lingering on the back end. Daisy Cutter is also super approachable at only 5.2% ABV. In brewery news, Alex and Andy attended the first annual Wisconsin IPA Fest this past Saturday at Third Space Brewing. This was a great event with a huge turnout on a beautiful afternoon. The winners were, for first keg to tap, Lion's Tail from Nina, Wisconsin with Juice Cloud. Let's take a listen to what their rep had to say to us. 
Alex and Andy here from the Tap Takeover Podcast speaking with Eric from Landstell Brewing Company. So Eric, we're here at Third Space Brewing for uh, the first ever Wisconsin IPA Fest and you just won first to tap. Tell us about that. I mean, we kicked in just over two hours, so I'm pretty impressed by it. It's a New England style cloudy IPA. The brew is called Juice Cloud. You can look for it at Lionsdale Brewing Company in the next month or so. It's going to be one of our probably flagship beers going forward. I would say it's dry hop, super late with citra, citra hops. It's an all citra hop beer. It's got a nice cloudy feature to it. It's got a nice juice taste. And look for... Look for it to be the dry hop beer of the Fox Valley. So is this something that we can find in bottles right now, or is this something that you're going to actually ramp up production on? It's not something you can find in bottles right now or cans. Um, It's something we're going to ramp up production on. I don't know if we're going to can it yet. We only can right now. We don't bottle. We will have it in the tap room, I would say, probably in two months from now. If you take my word for it, or you take the people's word for here at IPA Fest, I mean, it went quick. It's going to go quick when we're up there. I could see it being a regular beer of ours. I have to talk to my brother-in-law specifically, but I could see it being a regular IPA of ours. So for our listeners, tell us what Lion's Tale is all about and why they should take the short drive to Nina. Lion's Tale Brewing Company has been open almost two years. It'll be two New Year's, November 20th, 2017, so we opened back in 2015. It's a great brewing company. Our flagship beers are the Kula Wheat Pineapple Wheat Ale. It's not too weedy, it's not too sweet, so you can have a few and not get the gut rot feeling you get to with too many sweet beers. And then we have the Mile of Munich Dunkel Beer which is dark in color but it's light in flavor. For people who are scared of the dark beers and see the dark in color, it's actually super light in flavor and easy drinking. It's probably one of our most easy drinking beers there is. Those are our two flagship beers, but as far as the cold press beer that you were speaking about, we have a custom American pale ale, which is just a regular American pale ale, not too flavorful, and we have anywhere from 12 to 15 hot, different style of hops at any one point. You can pick your style of hops to dry hop it with. So for $12, you put it in a, you get two thirds of a beer in a French press. You get to choose your hops, put your hops in there, press the French press just down to where the beer is just coming out of the top of the French press. Now, do you get it to actually press the French press? You do actually get to press the French press yourself. If you don't want to, the bartender will do it for you. But I mean, why wouldn't you want to? So you press it down just so the beer is over the top and you watch the beer bubble and ferment itself almost and dry hop through those hops, through whatever style of hops you, you pick from Citra to Warrior to Amarillo to Simcoe to even Galaxy or there's a couple different hop brews that we have that aren't the normal hops that you see everywhere else. So you wait 15 minutes for that to brew in your cold brew. While you wait, you get a 10 ounce pour of any beer that's on tap to enjoy while you wait. So you're not without a beer while you wait for that to hop almost. 15 minutes is up, they pour it in, you have about two thirds of a beer in the glass. They take it back to the APA, hit it with the other third of the APA to add the carbonation back and bam, you have your own French press dry hop beer. I'll tell you what, for for us at the Tap Takeover Podcast, we love the IPAs and this is the coolest concept I've ever heard of. It's it's a, literally a customized APA. Well, it's a fantastic idea. And uh, we thank you a lot for the interview and thanks for your time. And we look forward to a full in-depth interview. Appreciate it, guys. Uh, we look forward to it in the future. Stop out at Lion's Tail. Enjoy, guys. Cheers, man. Hey, cheers. cheers. 
People's Choice Award, which was voted on by all the patrons at the event, went to Raise Grain for their Naked Threesome Juicy Brew. The main event was voted on by brewers, brewery reps, and beer specialists in a double-blind tasting event. By double-blind, we mean that the people pouring and the judges had no idea which beer was which and voted on them by taste and style guidelines alone. For third place, we had Montessor by Vintage Brewing in Madison. Second place went to the hosts at third space for their upward spiral. And taking home the trophy was Lakefront Brewing with their single hop centennial, which won't be released for sale to the general public until September. Let's put a cap on this event by listening to what Andy Gale, co-owner of Third Space, had to say. Alex and Andy here from the Tap Takeover Podcast speaking with... Andy from Third Space Brewing. So, Andy, tell us about this event and how you guys put this together. Yeah, we were pretty excited to host our inaugural Wisconsin IPA Fest today at Third Space. We got this idea together about three or four months ago. Kevin and I were talking about IPA Day, National IPA Day, which happened on Thursday, and that we really want to do something cool to celebrate IPA Day. Uh, Most people know that we're kind of known for making hoppier beers. Uh, We make a wide range of beers, but we're really getting known for our hoppy stuff. And so we really want to do something to celebrate IPAs. We love IPAs. We think there are a lot of great IPAs in the state of Wisconsin that don't always get a lot of credit. So we thought, let's put together a big festival. Let's invite every brewery in the state, and let's see who shows up. So that's what we did. A fantastic turnout. You guys had 30-plus IPAs. So what what were the big winners? Tell us about the, uh, the the first to tap. What was that one? Yeah, we were pretty excited to see a small uh, smaller brewery, uh, a brewery a lot of people don't know about, was the first, to, first kick, barrel to kick, and that was from Lion's Tail Brewing Company. I think they're out of Nina, and they had a, a beer here called Juice Cloud, and that was the uh, first beer to kick. I think... You know, people are pretty excited about juicy IPAs right now, and, and they were probably assuming that's what it was, and they were ordering it, and I had it, and I really liked it, too. So that was the first beer to kick. We were pretty psyched about that for those guys, that they that they were the first beer to, to blow. How did it feel to win the 2016 New Brewery of the Year for Wisconsin from Ray Beer? Oh, we were incredibly humbled to win that award, that we were shocked. You know, somebody actually sent me a message and, and said, hey, are you going to make a, a social media post about the uh, best new brewery? Yeah, you know, it's just it's announced. So we were pretty excited. Then we heard, found out it was third space, especially given how many breweries opened in Wisconsin last year. You know, even in Milwaukee alone, I think we had 12 different breweries that opened in 2016, or at least in the last 12 months from, from today. We were just psyched to be included in, in the talk, let alone to win that award. It was incredibly humbling. So how about putting this event on? I mean, what what does this mean for you guys as far as logistics? Like, it, this has got to be an incredible event to put on. Oh, yeah, it was amazing. It, and it took a lot of work. And, and we didn't do it alone. Uh, we had a lot of volunteers. I think we had maybe 30 to 35 different volunteers that came out today to help us pour beer. Uh, we worked with the Crafter Space. Uh, our good friend John Graham runs uh, the Crafter Space here in Milwaukee. And he gathered all these volunteers and really helped us gather this group to, to put it on. We also worked with the Milwaukee Craft Brewery league to promote it uh, a lot of people aren't really familiar with the craft brewery league yet but it's a group of local milwaukee breweries that all have gotten together to uh to organize to really build awareness for craft beer in milwaukee and all the great breweries we have here and uh so this actually this event is one of the last events of the milwaukee craft brewery week 
And so there have been events all over Milwaukee celebrating craft beer. And we thought, why not, you know, blow it out with a huge outdoor IPA festival to cap off a great week. And we were just amazed at how many people showed up here today and, and how many breweries and how many brewers came. You know, we invited the brewers to come to judge and to be a part of this together. And, and you know, right behind us where we're talking, the brewers are still hanging out, drinking beer and having a great time. So this was a fantastic idea. My only last question I have is, how many more do you think you're going to get next year from the state of Wisconsin? <laughs> you know, I hope we get everybody. We, we sent out an invitation to 126 breweries. I think there's even more than that in the state, but that's who we could get addresses for. And we got 36 to come. I think we can get more. I'd love to get up to 60 or, or above. You know, maybe we'll get 126. <laughs> we'll see. I think once people see the success of this event and how much fun people had and, and how many people came out, I mean, there were so many people here. The place was wall to wall. So I think we'll get a lot more next year. We're going to keep doing it. That we, we, we got that giant trophy we got to give it out every year so so for the uh, for the people's choice brewery award uh it was raised grain new brewery in wisconsin uh what do you think about those guys i think those guys are great and they're making fantastic beer our friend nick was here from raised grain one of the owners hanging out all day accepting the award they're making out some great beers out in waukesha we we respect what they do a lot uh, so much so that we actually made a collaboration beer with them uh, as a part of this milwaukee craft brewery week and we have it on tap here at third space right now uh, dry hopped saison that we made with raised grain and also our friends over at good city another great brewery in town so the three of us got together and collaborated on a, on a fun new beer and it's a perfect sign of like how we all work together here in milwaukee like to raise the awareness of craft beer so we were pretty excited to see our friends at raised grain win that award they really deserve it well hey thanks andy for talking with us and uh yeah we'll hear from more from you soon cheers in festival news, this Saturday, August 12th in Madison is one of the best beer festivals in the nation. Great taste of the Midwest. This iconic festival features the best of the best Midwest breweries who all bring their tastiest and also hardest to obtain beers. People camp out to purchase hard copy tickets to this one, folks. And the mail-in ticket lottery only gets you about a 10% chance of getting tickets. Great Taste Eve has also become an event upon itself with almost every bar hosting a tap takeover or pre-party. Here are a few you should definitely check out and are on our list as we will be in town on Friday and Saturday. Blue Moon Bar and Grill will be hosting a Toppling Goliath tap takeover with a special tapping of Morning Delight at 4 p.m. This takeover is also featuring the double IPA Sosis, their new double IPA Supa Sumo, and a fan favorite King Sue. Lucille will be Central Command for Central Waters 19 Beers for 19 Years Great Taste Pre-Party. Some very great selections will be available starting at 11 a.m. and special tappings begin at 5.30 with Cassian Sunset. Their Anniversary Brew 19 will be available at 6.30 and they finish with a bang with the highly sought after Black Gold at 7.30. Growlers to Go Go is hosting a New Holland event with six different kinds of Dragon's Milk. Dragon's Milk Hop Rocketed with Maple Soak and Coffee Beans, as well as the 2016 Dragon's Milk at 12 p.m. Reserve Coffee and Chocolate at 2 p.m. Reserve Mexican Spice Cake at 4 and Triple Mash at 6, as well as the S'mores at 6. We think the hidden gem of the pre-parties will be at the Funk Factory Guzzeria, which runs from 3 p.m. to midnight. They will be featuring tappings from 18th Street Brewery, Microphone, Transient Artisan Ales, and Untitled Arts, as well as several others. These are our four picks out of the many to choose from. We say follow your thirst and the style you want to try, because Great Taste Eve has something for everyone.
For these two days in August, Madison, Wisconsin becomes a mecca to beer lovers everywhere, and people travel from all over the country to attend. If you are some of the lucky ones who got tickets, say hi to Alex, Andy, or Jim if you see us in our Tap Takeover podcast gear. You, if you still need tickets, we have heard stories about them being sparsely available at some of the pre-parties or Tap Takeovers, and some folks even selling extras in line the day of the event. Thanks for listening to this episode's edition of Beer News. All right. Well, thank you for the beer news, Andy. Great job as always. We're coming back, and Randy, we wanted to ask you, we, we like to ask all of our brewers this question. If you could take over the taps at the Tap Takeover podcast, which beers, and, and actually root beers and sodas, uh, because we're, we've gone down that rabbit hole, what, what would you use to tell that story? Yeah, well, we're, we're looking at the tappers just behind the bar, and I, I count well over 20. So, yeah, we'll have to give you some, some extra leeway. We actually have more taps up for beer right now than normal, which is not a bad thing. I, I we'll start on the on the light end. Uh, uh, the, the pills, I think, is wonderful. It's been it's sold out already. We have to. We never know how much to make. This uh, our our summer pills. Our check pills with sauce hops. Is, I'd put it right out there. If I was feeling like even more summer like, the the vice beer is always a good one. You guys had the vice over there. Pretty true to character for a good a good vice beer. That's all about culture and getting through the mash because wheat malt is notoriously difficult to uh, do a proper louder mash. You could do uh, the plate and frame thing, which not many craft breweries do, but that's easier to work with. That for now for lighter beers still, you know, I, I, our grapefruit mango, a uh, rattler last year, it was just sensational. This was a great hot weather beer. That grapefruit, the acid for that grapefruit and everything was always so nice. And uh, so that's a couple. And then, that, that's, uh, that's a pretty new line for you guys, the Rattler series? Yes, that kind of started last year. And uh, I'm going to mention this Enkel. Uh, it's really a nice dry Belgian style, but we have a quad pack. We'll have to get into that later. That's that four Absolutely. that we're offering this year. But to give you the six beers, I guess I have to go Oktoberfest. Now my box always good, too. <laughs> and then, then my Black Bavarian, I've been making yeah. for, like I said, 46 years. Black Bavarian is just, it, it's, it's the dark beer, you know, for me. Uh, it's got the right complexity. It's drinkability. It's not too heavy. It has, you can drink more than one, you know. You, you can, we were once awarded the most drinkable uh, session dark beer, lager in America, over a lot of really important beers and imports. I like drinking that one almost any time, any time of year. I'm always ready for a Black Bavarian, I think. <laughs> I don't know if I hit six beers there or not, but I, I know there was at least that many there. That sounds good. But those, uh, those are really the standouts uh, in my mind, although we've had single shots of certain things, like I mentioned the, the, the Creek Lambic uh, years ago, which there's still a few bottles here and there. Then there's uh, the Belgian Double we had for an anniversary one also way back. This Double today is a little more malty. It should be I like a little lighter, but it's actually very nice. We'll get to that one here shortly. We haven't drank that one yet. Yeah, so we should mention for our audience that uh, we're doing a little live tasting. So uh, we've tried the the Pilsner, we've tried the uh, the Ankle, the Belgian Ankle, and we've tried the the Hefeweiss. So let, let's get some impressions here. For for me, I think the Ankle was my favorite. The Pilsner is nice and light and crisp, but the Ankle has really got some some interesting flavors going yeah, on. Yeah, it's a typical Belgian. It's it's a light bodied. It's not real strong flavors in this one, but it's got lots of nuances. A little complexity goes a long ways, whether it's soda or beer, because it helps your product affect on a variety of different palates. So you might get this note out of it. You might get that note out of it. All that's olfactory, of course, because taste is just four things. 
sweet, sour, salt, and bitter. But when you compound that with the aromas, now we get flavor and so forth. And that can really be all kinds of things going on with a flavor and aftertaste. When you talk about tasting, another thing to keep in mind, the human body is really variable. Our emotions, uh, where we're tired, what we had before we started drinking. So every beer doesn't seem to hit you the same every day, you know? Oh, that seems a little drier. Well, that seems um, a little fruitier. It's very often the beer is pretty close to where it belongs. It's the people that are moving around. We're biological, we're biological critters, and we have all these variables going on. And people have to learn, like professional tasters, they know how to set themselves up, like a golfer or whatever. So you go right through your routine, cleanse your palate, neutralize your palate, make sure you can breathe well. You know, uh, having allergies and all that really gets in the way of everything you can smell. But you got to realize that's going on that's, and how you adjust or balance that so that you get the same enjoyment or sensation from a product you had before. Then there's things about beers that are a little stronger. My Blackberry is a good example or any, any stronger, a little stronger ales. You really got to know the temperature, gas content, and the age. Uh, the temperature and gas content makes a real big difference, a mouthfeel and aroma and everything. But the age of the product, certain things need certain ages. Some things are good, fresh, and young, and that's it. Drink them while they're really as young as fresh as possible, the simpler beers. But we get more and more complex things, Doppelbox and barley wine and, and strong ales. Uh, you got to keep in mind that these may not be ready. I had a brewer I was trying to help, I always try to help a lot of small brewers. And they go, we just can't, we just don't like this beer. Like, you know, I said, well, it's not old enough. I said, well, give me your formula. Oh, yeah, well, look at this. ABC, a real rough calculation by a brewer would come up with, oh, this has to be like two and a half months old before it's actually at equilibrium, fully mature. Now, we've had three lighter style beers. I like them all. Uh, <laughs> Before we go into the next one, Randy, could mm-hmm. you tell our listeners a little bit more about your Lambic? You had some really interesting takes on, on the kettle sours that are becoming super popular today that I think our listeners might appreciate. A true Lambic, is uh, it takes quite a while for it to come around and be drinkable. It's typically uh, a year or so is, is a pretty, pretty much the minimum. However, uh, that's with cultures that have real weak uh, enzymatic abilities, so they're slow fermenters, they work slowly on the, on the beer, and when it's even done, it keeps changing to go to full maturity or equilibrium. Now, these are popular because, just like with German food and stuff, there's that sweet-sour thing going on with human palate. Most all of us have some affinity for the right acids, whether it's spinach, <laughs> You got people who hate spinach, people who love spinach. It's because of their acceptance in their palate, in their system, of these other chemical components that either turn them off or turn them on. And so when you're doing a lambic, a true lambic, you want these acids and everything that come out to come from the culture because there's many other byproducts that are on the side. They're very, very small. You may not be able to even sense them. Some people can because their threshold, that minimum level that they actually can sense is down here. Yours might be up there. You're over here on this product and over there on that. that. The real good ones have all kinds of great complexity. Now, it's easy to make a kettle sour by simply adding lactic acid to your brew, whether it's before you're, while you're brewing or boiling or whenever you want to do it, or even after fermentation. But this is just a straight lactic acid on the palate. It doesn't really affect a whole lot. Of, and other people, again, will, will sense different things in there. 
the more complex it is, it's really a great thing. You've got four of you. I'm sure you all got somewhat different palace, just how it works out. Yeah, we agree to disagree, but we all agree to enjoy. <laughs> One way or another. That's we're, the point. We're here for enjoyment. And, you know, they always say that drinking is, you know, a, a pure sport. You know, <laughs> it's like <laughs> we, we don't want to have too many rules. We don't want to have any, too many guidelines. We want to have, well, let me try this and see what I think. Let me try that, see what I think. Experimentation is really, I think, is a great thing. I have a big, you know, science background. But you get those areas where people, it's also good to be a dyed-in-the-wool drinker. Now, they love their Miller or they love my black Bavarian or root beer or whatever. And they're steady customers for that product. They buy it. They, that's what they want. That's what they want to sense over and over again. Others who go, I like that. Now I want, but I want to try something different. I want to test my palate. I want to challenge my system and see how much acid, how much hops, uh, how soft or, you know, how sharp something can be and, and still be uh, enjoyable, you know. So speaking of difference of opinion, on the podcast, we all have very different uh, different taste buds and everything. Now, Jim, I know you're not a huge fan of the Belgians, and Andy, no. I know that you are a big fan of the Belgians. Oh, wow. So I, I'd like to get both of your takes on this on the Belgian ankle. What uh, what are you guys tasting? Yeah, so I actually enjoyed the uh, ankle. The esters were light. They were not overpowering. You got uh, just a touch of clove in the background. Again, wasn't uh, going to be in-your-face Belgium. It was a real nice, easy drinker for me. I would agree with Jim. It's a very easy drinker. The esters, I mean, the smell is fantastic off of it. And it just sort of coats your tongue. And it's its not overpowering. You're not getting that, that Belgian candy like you're going to get yeah. from a triple. Oh, yeah. Triple's considerably different. Bigger, way big. Yeah, uh, the sweet and the, and the alcohol and so forth. But, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's quite those, a range. The lighter nuances that, that really come out forward in the triple. You know, and if you think about it, those two beers could have exactly the same ingredients with different ratios and end up that way and use the same culture. But the culture may be handled a little differently. Culture is a really big topic, uh, but it gets so complex, it's not really for the average <laughs> every listener because you got to get into enzymology and stuff because the different cultures have different ability to handle different molecules. And it's not just what they ferment out to be CO2 and alcohol. It's their little side products that are byproducts. The byproducts of fermentation is where all your esters and bouquets and stuff come from. That's probably another another good topic to hit on. What people are actually smelling, the flower things, those sweet, fruity things, the sweet things. You've got to keep in mind a lot of these are esters. And ester is a combination of acid and alcohol. Or it's made just straight out by the yeast cell as a byproduct. But after the bitter is done, it's still green beer. Esterification takes place where you start developing more bulk. But there's a lot of strong beers today that you want to drink them right away. You want to let them sit around a while and see how they actually develop as, again, as they go to equilibrium or full maturity of all these molecules coming into balance with each other and where it really ends up. So, Randy, before we go on to our next tasting here, one of the topics we like to broach on our show is the cellaring of beers. You were just speaking on aging. What's your opinion on that as far as lambics, High ABV imperial stouts, barrel aged stouts. Well, first of all, keep in mind this only makes sense for strong beer. You know, lighter style you must drink fresh and and, and, and early. You know, while it's, while it's young and and has all the right properties. Alcohol that's not 100% ethanol, it's predominantly ethanol, but there are other side products in there of the alcohols, more complex alcohols we would call them, that eventually will combine with other acids in the beer. There's plenty of acid, and these acids will combine and make a new molecule, and when it does that, it's called an ester. Now, things you get from like 
pear, apple, banana, all your fruits. They all everything you're smelling are basically all esters, sometimes some sweeteners. Those things all make a big difference. Now we we finished some light ones. We had some people's input on it. Here's another thing. Who's had the shock parl? Gluten-free. We won the World Cup on this after much work. This is not an easy one to make. So uh, speaking of uh, enzymic activity, uh, how do you prefer to do your matches? Are you uh, alpha amylase, beta amylase, use uh, single-step, multiple-step infusions? What we're making, it all varies. I even had a product I was calling double a double mash, double dough-in. You start mashing and go so far, and then you turn on and add another new ingredient and start it over while it's in there on top of the other one. No, we're drinking, they're drinking the Shock Paro, our gluten-free, African-style gluten-free. It took a long time to iron this thing out. It always was milky and soft, but it's got, a, it's got quite its own profile. And we did win World Cup uh, medal with this a few years back, and we haven't changed it at all. But when there's no gluten, this to me has like a little bit of melon, a little citrus. It's, it's unusual stuff, but it's not like typical beer. But again, we're taking all the things that beer are known for, the glutens, <laughs> from, from malt and grain. And that, so this is a sorghum and millet product. What makes it an African ale? Where, uh, where does that bend? Well, uh, gosh, it's a, long, it's a bit of a story here. We started working with the Afrofest people to make them some specialty beers. What we did, we did our own research and found out that in East and West Africa, the families make all their own beer. However, the brewing, the cooking and all that is done by the women and the daughters. All the collection, you have to be out in the savannah to realize, uh-oh, it's a long ways to a stick of wood out here. <laughs> and they had wood-fired cauldrons that were left laying around from, I'm gonna guess, the British and whoever made them. So they would do an open fire to heat this kettle and a little different fermentation. The, we, we call it an African thing because we followed very closely what they were doing with the sorghum and millet and other ingredients to make this. It has basically no hops in it or anything. So uh, we were talking about cellar aging, and uh, you guys have come out just in, just in recent memory now with uh, the Czar Brew, barrel-aged imperial stout. Yeah. Is that one that you, would, uh, that you would recommend to our listeners to put in their basement for a while? Or? Uh, there's a lot of those products of that strength. We've actually been doing this for quite a few years. Mm-hmm. The, the Czar Brew goes in a bourbon barrel, and lately our guys want to, Craig and his, his, his group, they decide we want to go two full years in barrel. Oh, boy. I am a more <laughs> nine-month to one-year guy. <laughs> it's a lot of barrel extraction that we get uh, for the oak and the bourbon. The Czar Brew is wildly complex, big, big brew. And the Commando has been just, I mean, the Commando not only got a gold. Now, we can age those. We've been drinking those, uh, gosh. I'll be honest with you, we've got some beers back in our holding way back there, six, seven, eight, nine years old. Oh, man. Yeah. Uh, and some things that will make it that long. Yeah, where is it, huh? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, and, and for our listeners who don't know, the Commando is the uh, Scotch Barrel Aged Ale. Yeah, the, the, the Commando is the, uh, the Piper Scotch Ale aged in oak bourbon barrels. All right, Randy, you uh, made a comment about helping out startup brewers or like just people that were just starting off uh, in the journey that you have, you know, 30 plus years in. So do you still make yourself available to them or how does that happen? Well, I, yeah, how it happens is actually is I go in a place. <laughs> I, I'm not exactly, uh, I would have too many questions to answer probably. I go places that well, I frequent or whatever, like my place in California or out in here. I'll taste the beers and stuff. I, I just like, well, gosh, uh, you know, how do you like it? Oh, I said, well, here's, 
you know, I offer my, my knowledge and expertise to uh, help you find simple ways to improve it. Not don't want to be a medal winner necessarily. That, that's a lot of work and a lot of attention to detail. And some can happen by accident, you know. So reproducibility, do you know what you did to make it come out that good, you know? And there's so many different little steps. Beer and wine, if you get really into it, it has great levels of complexity because of the little steps you can make. You know, people go, oh, don't give away the, don't give away the recipe. Well, the recipe isn't really that important unless you got a rare ingredient or something and they can't figure out what it is. The important thing, like with a chef, is how you do each step. How, like, let's say a chef's making even a salad, right? I mean, salads can be really quite more complex than a regular salad. How, how you select your ingredients, how you prepare them, how you chop, slice, grind. How you add them back in, how you mix. What temperature you're mixing at? What's the pH? What's the total acidity here? Do we need the acid, this brew water, foundation water, before we start to mash? Or can it, will it be acceptable to allow the enzymes in the malt to change the pH? Generally, you want to acidify a little bit and have the right pH to start. So there's all kinds of little steps and nuances you can do to make things come out where you want them. And the formula isn't, isn't that, that, that big a thing. It's very important is how you make that formula really come, come forward is, is a real ball game. That, that's where your brewing expertise is. And so when you have a problem in brewing or something doesn't come out right, that's where people who have all the, the real super background, you know, uh, have a better idea what to do or what will happen as opposed to just, you know, gosh, a wild guess and do something wrong again, you know. You know, we don't like dumping beer. We like to make sure we can get it where we like it at the end. Having an end goal already defined uh, is really important so that you end up there and not someplace next door or down the street and then try to call it what it is, you know. So you got to be careful of that. Do you have one pro tip that you would provide to any home brewer as to what's probably the most important step to make a good solid beer? Well, uh, first of all, solid beer is so much easier to make today. you got such a range of ingredients and cult, pure culture you can buy. We just have to grow it. When I started, I had to grow it. It was really difficult. One of the biggest things I would say is um, keep records with the timeline. And the other, the biggest thing, is, of course, is getting a, a quality. You have to have a strong fermentation. It can't lag. It can't get stuck. Uh, having a really strong fermentation is really critical to having the best bouquet and the best tasting beer. I guess going back to the startup aspect of this is how influential were you? I guess did Russ and Jim reach out to you when they were starting off? I know you started off a couple of years before them. How involved were you in their startup? And I guess oh, no, really not at all. No, we we was I there was any over there. Communication at all? At all or? Oh well, we we bumped into each other. We kind of did our own thing. We didn't really talk too much about beer. We talked about other things. They were in that original that real original place over there off of North Avenue. It was more about bringing things, get, getting together, and everybody getting together and doing stuff. Mind you, if you're only the first couple of beer breweries going on, well, we still didn't have enough money to advertise or anything. So it was word of mouth that people found out. And keep in mind, back in the days, you didn't have a cell phone. So that communication thing was like we had the old pay phones then. <laughs> you know, if you made a, an agreement with somebody to meet them at some place sometime, you better be there because there's no <laughs> other way to change the plan. Today, you can change it last nanosecond. You can make a detour, you know. So Russ... Uh, Jim and I, uh, we've always been real friendly. We've compared more like uh, 
you know, other type of notes, marketing, customer types, things like that. We never really uh, got too much into uh, serious beer discussion, but serious beer drinking, yes. So there was never collaborations early on or anything? Like no, that? but today's world, I'd say that that's, that's probably something that's far more uh, accessible and more re- uh, possible now than it was then. Actually, we had a good friend of mine who I work with. His name is Ramon Yemez. And he was actually at your event, your Belgian quad event. He was able to get all four of them. He got to dip them in the wax himself. It was quite the event. But uh, he actually had a question for you. He was wondering, uh, you, you've done more collaborations in the past. He was wondering if you have any plans in the future or why even uh, some of those collaborations kind of fell off. You know, it's we just had this discussion driving in the car today going to look at a site, how the crap brewers always been way more friendly with each other compared to the big guys. The big guys, they really keep their cards close to their chest. They act like they're friendly, but they don't want to talk about anything about business or technical. Uh, even Master Brewers doesn't get too much into it. They kind of keep your stuff to yourself. But today's world, with so many, the onslaught of so many breweries, and I, I think I mentioned to you that they've licensed over or have uh, by the feds. Gosh, uh, the last time I checked was 7,200 and quite a bit past that maybe. So with that many, uh, meals well under 100 when I started. People have kind of gone back the other way now. We're always friendly, but now we aren't talking. <laughs> I don't know what, I, I think maybe the age generation thing too, you know. I've been at it 46 years, beer winemaking, and I'm 70, so uh, I get along with everybody, but there's a lot of, lot of young people, they, go, they want to stick to their group. <laughs> you know, they, they don't want to, they, they want to cross over the line here and they go, those guys are old and dead and gone, I'm assuming. Uh, I, I don't really know. Everybody does a little, something a little different, you know. And so, and we have our own, quite frankly, we have a, a little variety in our customer base as well. Randy, earlier you were describing some distribution issues that you were having. Uh, could you elaborate on those? Well, that's probably not a, not a safe topic to talk about. Uh, <laughs> I'll just say that the distributors, they do, they do a really necessary and a great job. Uh, however, there's so few, they keep condensing down, buying up bigger and bigger territory and taking little guys out, letting them have a chance to retire. But it's made a quite, quite a different picture here. Everybody wants to have a brewery and a winery. How many people want to be the distributor? Quite frankly, the distributor gets them involved with more variety than anybody. Actually, in the end result, maybe the may make make the most money <laughs> when you finally sell. It, the whole thing there is is something that you know we have meetings, we try to get things going, but sometimes there's a disconnect. You know, uh, I wrote some little papers for the distributor. One was about incremental change. Now, any brewer would know what I was talking about. They just didn't get it that you would keep changing something slightly why don't you just keep it the same i go it's biology it's the tawar we're bringing stuff from the field every year the hops the malt are not identical we can make the water pretty close to identical but everything else uh, is not identical and you have to adjust with the, the changes that happen from harvest to harvest you know so as we record here in uh, late june currently the wisconsin budget bill is under debate in our legislation and there is some potential legislation that may be introduced into the Wisconsin budget bill. And so this is going to be important, not only for our listeners here in the state of Wisconsin, but potentially anyone in the United States that loves craft beer. Uh, Some entities in our legislative process that are looking to introduce legislation that could have a real major impact on not just microbreweries, but distilleries and wineries. They've already passed that in this state of Wisconsin regarding the wineries. 
where they cannot make a product and take it in their same building to the front of the building and sell it in a retail store without going through a distributor. This is really, really unfair. There's no reason that distributors should touch every drop of alcohol that is ever produced. I mean, if you need them, you you want to have them and use them and work with them. But if you don't, you should be able to get the product to customers who want to drink it and so on. There's such an onslaught of so many little guys selling pints. They want to make sure that you make the beer, but you must first sell it to a distributor who will then allow it to be sold in pints by the end user, which could be yourself. (laughs) (laughs) So So this is not going to be healthy for little guys because they're already working on slim margins. Really, really tough to make a living. It it is when you're small and starting. And this will kill off all the little guys that are selling pints without any money getting into the distributor's hands. Why do you think they feel so threatened? Well, their their revenues are going down. Just like the big breweries have lost ground and then the big micros, the older micros have lost a lot of ground. I mean, some have lost unbelievable volumes of beer. Uh, they're still surviving, but they started early, so they have everything paid off. And they can uh, deal with it, but it's not fun. And it, it definitely lose sleep over these things. We should be able to get to market a number of ways. And in, in some products, you simply want to sell a lot more and go a lot further around. Well, those make, obviously, uh, a good sense that you want to go to get in chains or stores and use a distributor to access them. They do a heck of a lot of work for you picking up the beer, making out routes and getting getting paid, you know. People got to think about that. There's got to be a money, a money transaction here somewhere. You know, <laughs> Still a business at the end of the day, right? You got to make uh, you got to make a bottom line or you're not going to be there. And a lot of them are uh, pretty tough right now, but they're working hard at it. I know the other other birds are doing this. But to pass this law that they're talking about uh, is actually kind of scary yeah, that is. all of a sudden I can't offer you this beer. I have to go to a distributor and up the price. Okay, then b- b- before that, uh, let's pour a beer. Oh, yeah, before the midnight session. <laughs> All right, well, I think this is a perfect place to end it for now. We're uh, we're not out of beer. We've actually got some more beer to try. So what we're going to do is uh, we're going to come back next week with a special bonus episode for our listeners with a uh, special tasting of some of these beers that Randy's been talking about, some of the sodas, some of the hard sodas. We've got a lot. And some really <laughs> old age beers. See how they held up and what they changed to be after four or five, six, seven, eight years old. Amazing. Amazing. So uh, so this is it for now. So uh, for me, for Alex. Jesus. Andy. And I'm Jim. And I'm Randy. All right. Cheers, boys. We cheers. will be back cheers. again. Cheers. Absolutely. Cheers.